Thank you. You're welcome. Good morning, everyone. First, I want to thank you all. Uh, I am truly grateful for the warm welcome into this community. It has been a privilege to meet you and get to know you, and I know that I'm only just beginning that process, and I'm excited to continue and grow in that journey. Alyssa and I have only uh, just recently got here, but already this church has been, and this community have been a huge blessing to us. Um, I know that personally, I've started to feel an awesome peace that uh, I previously didn't fully realize I'd been missing. So thank you for helping to kindle that fire that I'd probably been neglecting a little within myself. So I am not the topic that I'm intending to talk about today, but I do think it's fair to give you a little bit of background, since a person's history quite obviously shapes their perspectives and opinions. Um, so I, I do uh, feel like I should introduce myself a little bit. Um, so I was born and raised Catholic um, in a very Catholic family. I was an altar boy. I taught RCIA, that is the Rites of Christian Initiation for Adults. Um, I love to debate religion. Um, all through high school, I attended a Protestant youth group, um, partially because my friends were there, but also partially because uh, I enjoyed being confrontational about it a little bit and probably not the most positive of ways. Um, and when I went to college, I actually joined the Knights of Columbus um, very briefly. And then, as often happens in college, uh, I kind of drifted away. Uh, instead of with focusing on church or even having it be a large part of my life, I got into judo and jujitsu and uh, a huge course load and relationships. None of those things are in the, themselves, you know, bad things. Uh, but it did. It is what I filled my time with, and it allowed. I allowed myself to push kind of religion off to the sideline. So after several years of it not playing a role, uh, I entered a phase of my life right before my first marriage uh, where religion kind of came up again. And in that space, I carefully began scrutinizing kind of my Catholic roots. And to make a very long story very short, I ended up with 113 pages of reasons why I'm no longer Catholic. <laughs> I still have that document. Um, even with that, that was still a phase. Over the next few years, um, I joined the Army. I continued to move around the country. I did attend churches of many denominations. I've been to Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, uh, a lot of the military non-denominational, some Wesleyan churches. Um, and it always resulted in kind of you know, a brief stint where you feel like you're spiritually engaged, but in the end, you know, it, was, it was phases. Um, and so... As I look kind of back at my life, I realize I've described myself many times as someone who very easily has an intellectual faith, but that I struggle to maintain a deeper connection. Now, I, of course, realize that the obstacle there is, in fact, myself. Um, I cannot approach God the way that I do the rest of life. That's to say, on my own terms, expecting to be able to rationalize and think my way through everything. So instead, uh, I'll say that recently, I found a lot of peace uh, focusing on setting aside time for prayer where I get to focus on thankfulness and praise, not so much analyzing through, you know, the what-ifs and the whys, but setting aside time to personally worship and reflect on all the stuff that God has done for us. Um, the other piece of that is I have found it very helpful to actively seek opportunities to say yes to embracing God wherever he approaches me. And on that note, here I am. So 
I will uh, preface this that I am not as polished as, uh, as Brody is, so I am not actually sure how much material I've prepared. Uh, I was uh, shooting for 20 minutes. Um, maybe I'll talk nervously the entire time. We'll be done in 10. Or um, I have told Alyssa that if I touch 30 minutes, she has to tackle me off this stage. So um, in the end, I will be as surprised as you are. So when Brody asked me if I would speak today, I knew I wanted to find something that did nest with and complement his series. And kind of with that thought in the back of my mind, I found myself thinking about how it's sometimes difficult for me to wrap my head around the fact that God is unchanging between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If I'm being honest, when I compare the actions of God commanding his people to destroy cities to the last child and striking down his own Levitical priests for offering the wrong sacrifice at the wrong time, and I compare that to the God of infinite mercy and love that we read about in the New Testament, the image that comes to mind is not one of unity, if I'm being honest. And so as I was mulling through that in my mind, I realized that what I was going to talk about today was covenants. And that may seem like a leap, or it may not. I know that uh, in that week that we were absent that Brody did get into the covenant uh, in the time of Abraham and talked about that. So maybe you guys can see where this is going. But I think that if we kind of take a step back and look at covenants uh, over the course of the entire Bible story, we end up with a picture that doesn't tell of two separate personalities of God. What we get is a very cohesive story of a God who is meeting his people where they are and teaching us his ways is exactly as we need to be reached at that time. And so we'll just give the crux of it right up front. We call this a bottom line up front in the military. Um, what I'm talking about today is that God's covenants have always, since the creation of Adam, been his preordained lesson plan laid out for us to prepare us to receive Jesus. It was in the beginning and always has been about Jesus. So to understand this, the first question is, what is a covenant? Um, and again, I know that Brody talked specifically about it in the time of Abraham last week, cutting a covenant, very serious, your life is on the line. But I kind of want to disambiguate it from that a little bit and step back and see how it applies to the entire story and how God uses covenants to relate to his people over time from the creation of Adam to now. So when I went to look up a definition of covenant, uh, the definitions aren't super helpful from a dictionary. Uh, covenant is an agreement. Okay, that's not very useful. Um, you can get down to one where it's a formal agreement. Uh, God, has, God makes with his people where he tells them how he's going to relate to them. Um, it's still not super specific. So I want to provide a, a thought that I think will help us get on the same page if we can get the next slide. So a covenant is how God promises to re, uh, relate and interact with the world. It describes how he will treat his people and how he will be accessible to them. Um, and I think that pretty well captures uh, what they mean, and that can be applied to every covenant throughout the Bible. So the next question is, what are the biblical covenants? And it turns out that it's a little less straightforward than I thought. Um, there appears to be some disagreement. I've seen five, and I've seen nine. Um, so the full list of everything that people consider a covenant is God's relationship in Eden with Adam, Adam after the fall, Noah with Abraham, 
with Moses. Then there's two that I hadn't considered, the priestly covenant, where he promises an unending priesthood, uh, the Palestinian or the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant, um, or everything that I've seen referenced as a covenant. Now, I don't think arriving at a perfect agreement is necessary to understand uh, the point I'm trying to make, which is how God uses these covenants to lead and make himself accessible to his people. Um, that being said, I'm pretty sure the right answer is seven. Um, but that's a, that is just an opinion. Um, I do think it is important, though, to start at the beginning. So in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God makes man, uh, and we understand that relationship. Man exists in perfect unity with God, he is given dominion over creation. Uh, Brody did a fantastic job covering this two weeks ago, so just kind of recapping the highlights. But we had a perfect existence in paradise in communion with God. And then there was this one little tiny rule, don't even worry about it, guys, life is perfect, just don't touch the tree. And so the question I went into this one with is why did there have to be a tree? I remember being younger and thinking about that. If Look, everything was perfect. Why did we need there to be a tree of evil in the garden? And the answer, I'm pretty sure, is that God created us in his own likeness and image. And we could have an entire different talk about what all of that entails. But for our purposes today, what that means is man has the ability to make choices with moral consequence. And God created us to exist in communion with him by our own free will, and if there's not an alternative choice, then it's not free will. So there had to be the option to turn away. And so we know what happens from there. Man turns away from God and introduces sin to the world. And that same turning away from God really is the baseline definition of all sin that followed. All forms of sin are just a means of turning away from God. So, I looked up a little too long here. Let me find my spot here. Um, yeah, so with man's sudden knowledge of good and evil, we introduce sin into this otherwise perfect world that God had created for us. Um, and the problem is that from the introduction of sin, triggered by that action, we now have this idea that all mankind has struggled with that we are capable of doing good on our own, without God. Uh, and so the rest of this entire story is fixing this problem in mankind. So we can see right from the beginning, even from the perfect existence in Edom, that the thing that Adam was lacking was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and Jesus in his heart. So even in the very first covenant, the thing that man was missing was Jesus. So after the garden, uh, there's the fall. And that's when we get to our second covenant uh, called the Adamic covenant, which I think kind of makes sense if we break that word down. Um, and this is where life is about to get really tough. This is life without the paradise of constant communion. Our part is to experience suffering and death in the absence of God. So we are separated from God's presence. And what we see as a result over the generations following Adam is that man becomes thoroughly evil. Um, God doesn't really demand anything from uh, man in this covenant, but this is kind of the punishment phase. Uh, I'm going to relate to you in the sense that I'm not constantly present with you anymore, which is different than what you're used to. And you are going to suffer 
most of the consequence of your sin. Death is introduced, and life is really hard. So this is experiencing life without God. Um, so this is the first learning step of that covenant sequence that life without God is not very good. And so we see that mankind becomes thoroughly corrupt. And then there is uh, this promise uh, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the forward-looking piece of the covenant where it alludes to that Satan will gain temporary death over Jesus, but Jesus triumphs over death and sin. So this is that promise piece. So life sucks right now because you guys brought sin into the world. Um, but there's better to come. And that kind of sets up the covenant pattern going forward. So generations later, we end up with Noah. And Noah identifies, or in the time of Noah, God says the world has become thoroughly evil, but Noah has found favor with God. And so that kind of completes the previous thought that without God's constant presence, humanity became truly corrupt. So we know what happens here. The great flood happens, and God destroys all of humanity except for Noah and his family. And so after this, we see the Noahic covenant. Um, God will relate to the world by exercising restraint. He acknowledges that there will still be sin, but he will never again destroy the world as he did in the Great Flood. His commission to Noah was to be fruitful and multiply. He does provide some small guidance for a moral law. And this is still not a state of communion. This is a state of command. You guys have this charge. Go out, live well, be fruitful, multiply, um, and, see, and be good. This is another opportunity for humans to prove to themselves that we're going to fail at this. We don't have this communion. So this kind of is going to be the recurring theme that God gives us the opportunity. We thought we could do it on our own in the beginning. So God gives us the opportunity to try. Um, He knows how it's going to go. But unless we prove it to ourselves, we aren't prepared for Jesus in the end. So this is also, again, mirrored if we go into the Abrahamic covenant. And you guys spent a lot of time on this one, uh, I believe, last week. Um, And here we get a bit more specific. How will God relate? Well, he promises land, seed, and blessings. Your descendants will be numerous as stars. You'll be given the land flowing with milk and honey. um, And you will be blessed. Um, So there is a glorious future for those who listen to and follow God. And this is kind of the start of the positive promise being clearly defined in the Old Testament. Um, so the answer is, was Abraham successful? Was he good enough to achieve that kind of salvation on his own? And the answer is no. I mean, he was a good and righteous man, but we see that he does turn away from God several times. So even with hearing the voice of God continuously, um, without that indwelling of Jesus and without the gift of the Holy Spirit, we still can't get there on our own. So that also, so since you guys covered that a little bit, uh, and it does repeat the same exact pattern as Noah, we'll keep going to the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and in this version, we get a lot more presence from God. So here, God is right in the middle of his people. Um, Moses intercedes numerous times. The extent, the organization of the entire Mosaic community is centered around the procedure for worship and atonement. Um, 
And the people, all of the people who followed Moses, can see God present in their midst. He delivered them from Egypt with, you know, signs and wonders. Uh, he traveled in front of them in a pillar of fire uh, by night and of smoke by day. There is nobody who followed Moses who had any doubt about the presence of God in their midst. They also had all these commandments to follow, a pretty exacting law if we go back and read it by today's standards. Um, and that's where I get to another question I kind of want to pose to you guys is why was Mosaic Law so exacting and so you know, weighty? Why was there so much to it? Was that for the benefit of God or was it for the benefit of his people? And if we think about it, we know that God is perfect and complete in his own. So all of this involvement that the Mosaic Law demanded of his people was for their benefit. Nobody living in the time of Moses attempting to follow the law could ever forget for a moment that God was there, that he was powerful, uh, and that he was what it was all about. So even though reading back on it today, it seems pretty weighty, a little bit demanding, uh, it was a grace provided to them. Since the purpose of covenant is to provide access to God and describe how he will interact with his people, uh, this was that method by which they could interact. They had a very clear defined rules. They could never forget. Um, and so with every tool provided to them, were they successful? And the answer we know is no. Uh, so this is, you know, that next attempt. You, you guys wanted to be good under Noah. It didn't work. You wanted to be good under Abraham. You still fell away. All right, I am right here now. Like, here I am. You can see me. Do what I tell you. That's all you have to do, and you can have communion with me. And even with all of that provided, we're still missing that crucial piece. It is still a lack of Jesus, and so we are still going to fail at doing what we're told, essentially. So, and then this is where uh, those two potential covenants, the priestly covenant and um, the land or Palestinian covenant come in. I see those basically as um, extenuations of the Mosaic covenant, but again, it's continued promise. He promises an everlasting priesthood. Look, you guys aren't doing it on your own. There will always be a priesthood there to guide you. Um, the land covenant. Look, all you have to do is just follow our directions and you will have the blessings. So here's that continued process of the promise, the expectation, and the opportunity to try and get there on our own. So following that, we end up in the Davidic covenant. And this is where the people have fallen away after the Mosaic Covenant, and they say, look, if only we had a king, that's what we need. Uh, we could actually do this. If you just gave us a king and he would tell us what to do, he would be in charge, and then we could follow you successfully and, and be righteous people in your eyes. And so David was a powerful man. He found favor with the Lord. Um, but we know that he still was not able to complete being the perfect king. And we know that people still fell away. And that brings us to the New Covenant. So this is, I kind of want to pause, and I want to ask again, did covenants replace each other, or was it cumulative? And I think the answer is that covenants were cumulative. No new covenant ended the promises of the old covenant. What we actually see, if you put them all together, is this building of promise and this building of access. Each subsequent covenant after the fall 
provided more explicit access to God and uh, was a more specific outline for how he was going to relate to the world. Each provided more tools for his people to be able to justify themselves according to his perfection, um, which is all a form of grace offered to his people. Um, you know, God doesn't need us to be perfect for his own sake. Uh, it's just that imperfection can't exist in his presence, and so he is trying to cultivate a people who are capable of existing with him in eternity. In order to be in communion with God, we have to be made righteous. And so here, through a series of five, six, seven, or eight covenants, um, we have proved over and over and over again that we cannot do it on our own. And so then we have Jesus in the new covenant. And so Jesus uh, fulfilled all of the, the requirements of the previous covenants. And that is... I think that illustrates why the covenants were given the way that they were. The covenants as written don't even entirely make sense without them being about Jesus. You know, why was the lineage so important? Well, because he had to be a king in the line of David because God promised David an everlasting throne and an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting king. You know, so David couldn't do that. But in the line of David, we have Jesus. So the Davidic covenant was about Jesus. Uh, and the same is true in the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant and all of them. Uh, that's why they were given the way that they were, is because even at the time where they were presented to his people, they were about Jesus. So all of this whole story through the Old Testament, to go back to that first line, is God approaching his people the way that they needed to receive him so that they would be made to understand that the only way was through accepting the grace of what was to come. They needed a perfect king and a perfect law in order to be made righteous in his eyes. So now, what does it mean to, be, to live in that new covenant? And I'm going to reread that first reading to kind of entertain this or to introduce this thought again. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone, You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So, The law is written in each of us, gifted by the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. So the Mosaic law was completed in Jesus. He lived under the law. He was judged by the law, and he was found worthy, making him that perfect sacrifice, capable of atoning for our sins once and for all. And as a result of having the perfect king fulfilling all the old covenants, we have now entered into this period where the covenant is written in each of us. That's what that indwelling of Christ's spirit means, is that we contain the ability, uh, granted through Jesus, to live out righteous lives covered by his grace. So another way to look at that, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. So what does it mean to be in the new covenant? It means that we have to accept Jesus and his grace and acknowledge that all good comes from him. In our call to have faith in Christ, um, if we believe in him, we will produce good fruit because we also know that faith without works is dead and has no life. So there is some desire, there is still the onus to live out good lives, embrace, you know, the gift of grace through Jesus. And then the analogy that I see when I read that is of a mirror. So a mirror doesn't produce its own light, but it is a reflector of light that is shined on it. So to string these together, a way to see that is that we are called to polish our mirrors, uh, you know, live in Jesus, uh, understand what that means, fix the flaws in ourselves, and be- become capable of reflecting the grace granted to us to those around us. So that would be, in my mind, the commission of the new covenant. To become an instrument available for God's use that we can be a blessing to others. And I think the covenant story kind of gives us a a good perspective on how that occurred and the reason that we know that this is the only way is because we have tried every other way as as humanity so guess we went with the 10 minute version there but uh (laughs) let us pray lord god uh, we are gathered today in praise of your glorious plan which from the time of man's first breath was designed to prepare us to receive jesus and for everlasting communion in your presence. I I pray that united in one body with Christ, in your new covenant, we are prepared to receive your grace and reflect your grace to the world around us. I pray that at work, in church, around our communities and families, we can be a blessing to others, leading others to rejoice in the good news of the gospel. Amen. And then if we could stand for a benediction. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather today, together today in your name. We humbly ask your blessing as we leave this service and return to the activities that fill our week. Let us courageously rejoice in the glory of Jesus Christ and actively seek opportunities to be a blessing to others. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of courage and love and of sound mind. Amen.